This is Amstigator, a podcast founded on purpose, but focused on the path to get there. Experience is the best teacher, right? And in this season of Amstigator, we're going all in on female perspective of women and wisdom as we answer one specific question. What's the lesson here? Welcome back to Amstigator. Today, we're talking about a subject matter that affects one in four of the listeners of this podcast. It's about infertility, but the conversation isn't in the context of what you expect because the experience of this guest and who this person is is quite unique. Today is the ultimate art imitates life story. As a celebrated New York Times bestselling author, J.T. Ellison releases her 25th novel on the same day as this release, February 21st. But this novel is different. And in this episode, you'll hear her say she was able to mine it deeply because it was her own story. She had 10 miscarriages. Let that number sink in for you a minute. 10 positive pregnancy tests. 10 losses, and the last miscarriage was with twins. So in this episode, you'll hear JT talk about her struggle with infertility, which started at the same time as she was reaching critical success in her writing. I mean, how unfair is that? After years of trying to start a family, she finally had to say, look, I cannot do this anymore. My heart can't take it. And she put that part of her life on the shelf. But in this episode, we talk about what went into processing that pain and why now, 10 years after she ended her attempts to start a family, she's sharing what happened. JT talks about how deeply personal it was and how even after all these years, it is still so hard to write about, even more difficult to talk about. And she told me after the conversations I've had with her that this, this one, this was the most difficult interview she's ever had to do. Because while every other interview is about the book and how she constructed it, I was asking about her. For me, she had to relive the deeply intense pain and the loss and the grief and how she brought all of that onto the page. So today's about tragedy, but also triumph, because JT shows there is life on the other side of loss. So here's JT Ellison with How Creativity Heals. Let's start with It's One of Us. What is different about this book, about your process, about even your muse going into creation of this than all the other, what, 25 other books that you've written? Yeah, this is the 25th published novel. Wow. Incredible. Um, it's a completely different book for me. It, it has layer upon layer upon layer of emotion that... It's not that my other books aren't emotional, but this one just truly, I was able to mine it deeply because a lot of it was my own story, which I've done before. I mean, I, I've done this before. So this one is special and it is different. The idea of a woman who is in such an untenable position. She has just lost a child. She is struggling with infertility and her husband is now the father of 28 kids and hasn't told her that he was a sperm donor. And, and one of them is a serial killer. Okay, this is a problem. <laughs> yeah. So even in writing it, I wrote it in huge chunks of time. I would, I would sit down and write for like five hours and get 7,000 words. And then I wouldn't Whoa. touch it again for a few days because it was hard to write. I mean, it's very difficult to write. I also have a much bigger cast than I normally do because I wanted to make sure I could examine all sides of this this issue of infertility. It, you have the infertility aspect with Olivia and Park. You have the sperm donation aspect with Darby and Scarlett and, and her family and the choices that she makes. It's coming at an I'm, I'm drawing in my, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm drawing in the sky. I'm Italian. Um, <laughs> I'm using my hands to explain. It's, it's almost like a coronavirus, right? It has yeah. a little circle in the center. And then all of these spokes that are coming off of it that all lead back to the main idea. And it's just, I, I've never done a yeah. story like this before. It's just it, all new. It almost feels cinematic in a way because yes. that's how when something is adapted for the screen, you have storyline A, storyline B, storyline C, C, D, so that people can see themselves in different characters and really just connect to the storyline. Was that part of the goal? Absolutely. I wrote it thinking of my film agent. 
Holly Frederick or Curtis Brown. <laughs> I absolutely 100% wrote this for her to be able to sell for episodic TV because you have to have these huge, important characters. Each one is a tentpole for the story. You can't just have somebody on the screen as a point of view who isn't going to be able to carry a 40-minute episode, yeah. right? So I did absolutely write it with those things in mind, and I'm so excited that you <laughs> you know the technical aspect of that because that's a lot easier to explain. Well, I mean, I think when you when you start looking at um, television or film, and we and we look at those as entertainment, but if you really start digging into, well, you got to have enough to support, you know, absolutely. A, a bigger thing. I mean, a bigger thing. Yeah. So a I, story. I I hear you saying these different things, and I see it in in the book that you've written. In this book, your life, no, your art rather, has imitated your life. Mm -hmm. And I understand how painful some of this must have been. So get us up to speed on what you dealt with and why it took you almost 10 years to put it on the page. <laughs> so my husband and I uh, were trying to have children. And when we decided to start, I, I told him, I said, we're either going to get pregnant the first time or we're going to end up doing IVF. And both were true. It was just crazy. So I could get pregnant. I could not stay pregnant. It was uh, just nobody could figure it out. I They've gone through. I've done all the genetic testing. There's weird little things, but none of it really explained why. Um, and so it, part, of, part of doing all the infertility treatments, you know, obviously the man has his part to do. And in a very sterile environment, very with nudie pics, not, and... not a really sexy environment. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're locked in a cubicle with a couple of playboys. <laughs> and so he comes home from this first episode and he was like, they were playing Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> I said, you're kidding. He goes, that has to make it into a novel. He goes, I'm, I mean, how do you even focus? I'm yeah. like, I know. Because <laughs> he's a Tennessee volunteer. Go balls. I mean, it just that just threw him off his game, which just made me laugh. And, you know, you have to find the humor yeah. in the tragedy or else, you know, you sink, right? It, it, you've got to be able to find these funny things. So we knew we wanted to have that in a book. But mm -hmm. how was I ever going to write? I'm a thriller writer. How, yeah. how do I write about infertility yeah. as a thriller writer? Well, I think the interesting thing about the market, the publishing world has changed so much. It is so, so woman-oriented right now. Mm -hmm. We have an amazing cadre of writers who are really peeling back the, the layers on what psychological thrillers are mm. to women. Yeah. They always were very traditionally male-oriented, and now it's all female-oriented. Oh, yeah. And I think about the true crime. It's all female-driven. It's, it's all female-driven. Um, so the market has changed, and it was like, okay, maybe now is the time to write something that would be both touching and thrilling yeah. at the same time. Okay, I'm going to call you on this because because you, I hear you making it a strategic business play, but I know that it goes so much deeper for you than that, that you, if you were emotionally capable of writing this book eight or nine or ten years ago, I think you would have written it then. I just don't think you were able to do it until now. So what about the, gosh, I know you finished this novel 18 months ago. Right. So what about the eight years in between giving up on your fertility journey and then writing this book? What happened in those eight years that made you finally ready to start putting your experience on the page? Um. You know, that's a good question. We did actually, we, I say we because my husband really helped with developing the story. We had put together a, a treatment to go for HBO um, called The Many Faces of Me and and went in and pitched it and everything. And this was eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't it didn't land. You know, those things are very hard to to get picked up. You know, just on a, a thing, and the the folks we were working with said, you know, write it as a short story, and then we could probably go back mm. like that. I was like, I don't want to write this as a short story. This is much too big. Um, I don't know. It, I don't know why now was the time. I switched agents, and I needed something really big to capture her attention. And we were talking one day, and and she was like, so you know, what what are the things? This was right right when I first started working with her, and she goes, you know, what are the things you're thinking about? You know, what are some of the projects? And I said, well, I have this one about an infertile couple who find out that their the husband's biological son is a murderer, and she gasped 
I was like, well, it looks like I'm right in that. <laughs> That's I mean, she was like, one. stop right there. That's it. That's it. Send me the, send me the proposal. And, and you know, I yeah. had to write up a proposal and send it to her, and she just went absolutely haywire, which is great. Yeah. Right? So then I have external support for this. Maybe it's having gone through menopause, and I'm on the other side of it, and there's no hope at yeah. all of getting pregnant, and so I can have a little altitude. Because, you know, I literally got pregnant every three months for years. And then how far could you carry? I never made it past nine weeks. And you would miscarry at that Mm -hmm. point? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a little earlier, sometimes six, sometimes eight. What was it like the first time you miscarried? Um, I really didn't know that it had happened the first time because my period was just late a, a little bit, just a couple of days. And then... Um, but the first one, the first big one that, you know, has the have the positive pregnancy test, yeah. wrap it up, you know, in a bow for my husband with what you can expect when you're expecting, yeah. you know, give it to him as a Christmas present. It was Christmas. Oh, um, why does it always happen on Christmas? Oh, oh, it's always. God, I have a friend who this just happened to a couple months ago at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. there's something about holidays. I, it might just be the extra stress of the holidays that, you know, your body's like, nope, can't do all of these things. Can't yeah. multitask. Um, but yeah, so we were flying, we went down to my parents and everything was all, you know, hunky dory. We obviously couldn't tell them. And then I miscarried and, you know, I knew obviously what was happening very quickly. Um, and then had to go and tell my husband Mm. and not tell my parents. And they knew something was horribly wrong. Yeah. Because of the way you're reacting. Yeah. And, and so it was a very awkward (laughs) Christmas. Um, and, and I finally did tell them about a year later, wow. you know, when I had then had another couple of, of yeah. mis- you know, told them, hey, we're trying and we're not succeeding. You know, and we're starting to, to think maybe, you know, my age has something to do with it because we we started late. Yeah, we started really late. Which is what age? Oh, gosh, I was 35. Yeah, so the whole time that I was having my debut novel, second yeah. book, third, fourth, that whole thing, I was having this complete falling yeah. apart world on the back end that nobody knew about. Well, and so we just didn't tell anyone. What is that? I, I have friends that I've seen this happen to where they have these parallel paths where on one side, professionally, their their career is like the most incredible thing. That they've, yes. And then on their personal life, whether it's they're in their relationship or their physical health or something personally is terribly wrong yeah why is that why do we see that I, I don't know. I don't know it's a phenomenon though because that's that's exactly you know I, and I would tell my husband I'm like wow the worst things are behind the closed doors the better yeah. things are on the other side because wow. yeah my career is taking off yeah. and meanwhile I'm going through this tragedy yeah. every few months of, you know it's loss that's it's, grief and loss it's every grief few and months loss, and I do not do feelings. I don't like feelings. They make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Welcome uh, to Amstigator. Yeah. We're going to talk about our feelings. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of a joke with my friends. They're they're just like, yeah, you know, we know you have them, but you do a really good job of, of hiding it because they're just, ugh. You know, but getting older, I'm I'm a little more comfortable with having feelings. I'm a little <laughs> bit less concerned about what people think about yeah. the feelings that I have. I think you know, being being a little bit older has helped yeah. with that because, yeah, there was definitely you know, what are people going to think of me? What are they going to think? You know, well, oh, who the hell cares? I at that time, I you cared, I a, cared lot. a lot. I cared a lot, and yeah. you know, it's especially being a creative and putting your heart out for strangers to read. And I'm an, I'm an introvert on top of everything else. So, you know, it, it was just a really bizarre dichotomy mm-hmm. that was difficult for a few years. Yeah. It was really difficult. How many times did you miss Carrie that you know of? At least 10, probably 11. I stopped counting at 11. How many miscarriages did you have before you said, okay, we're going to do fertility treatments? Probably three or four, three or four, right about in there. And and my doctor was like, listen, you're high risk pregnancy anyway because you're of your older age and, yeah. and everything. We want you to go see the, the geriatric obstetrician. I, know, I, know. I was a geriatric <laughs> pregnant woman. Don't worry. Oh I know. I'm 35. Like... What are you talking about? Geriatric. <laughs> but, but yeah, so it was, it was all high risk and everything. Yeah. And, and that, um, 
she was the one that, that said, you know, I think you're probably going to have to do this in a more scientific method. Well, that probably felt safe to you, didn't it? Because the way you're so analytical sure. in that way that you're like, sure. oh, okay, we can make this work. Did you have hope? That it was going to work. Of course. I would yeah. never have done it if I hadn't. And, and there there comes a moment where it's like, becomes a business. Like, mm-hmm. okay, now we're in. Now we're in it. Now we're in it to win it. And we have to make this happen. Yeah. And that's where you hear all the stories of, of women who, you know, they finally give up. They adopt. And, t- you know, they're waiting for the adoption to yeah. go through and they find out they're pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, that, did not, that didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I found out I was pregnant, but... <laughs> It yeah. just would not, it, it would just wouldn't stick. Was there ever a point in one of the final pregnancies that you, I'm sure in the back of your mind, you always knew, hey, in the past, I've always miscarried when I get to this certain point. Mm-hmm. Was there even a, a part of you that had any hope left or did you just always set yourself up for loss? No, I, I, you know, I was doing all the things right. And, and I had started acupuncture and all the different, you know, foods and meds and everything. And, and we were doing IUIs to start, um, which is <laughs> an experience in and of itself. Um, but, it, you know, really difficult conversations that go along with that because, you know, you can suddenly have eight embryos and they have to decide, okay, you can't Who's getting it. You can't carry eight embryos, right? right? Talk to mom. You know, how are you going to deal with that? And so we're having these really thorny philosophical conversations because, you know, when you've had as many losses, the idea of purposefully losing is just, you know, you can't wrap your head around it. They call that selective reduction, which obviously we can't do do anymore anymore, in the state. Yeah, right. Which is um, a whole issue (laughs) unto itself. We're not going to get into the politics today. We're not going to get into the politics of this today. But (laughs) but it's something that I think people don't even realize is the infertility treatments um, involve a lot of this. Right, right. And, you know, when, you know, hey, you don't have a heartbeat, but there you haven't miscarried, you know, they got to get you. They got to make you miscarry. So there, there's, there was a lot of that going on too. So it right. was, it was just an incredibly emotional time, and I didn't think that I was processing it. I thought I was just putting it over here. But if you read some of my books in that time period, I was processing it. I was going through really? and working through this loss in the books. I had a character lose her voice. I had a character lose her family. I had a character who blew up her entire world and had to start over. I mean, it's it was really interesting. It's mm. it was definitely there. It was leaking in, yeah. and I just didn't want to admit it. Now, now, yeah, now I'm mm-hmm. admitting it, and I'm putting it in on purpose yeah. instead of my my psyche putting it in for me. Yeah, it's like its own character. Yeah. The, the infertility Almost. is its own character. Almost capture for me the emotion of being unable to carry a pregnancy to term, unable to have a baby. Capture that emotion, that roller coaster for me. Because I imagine it's come out in the book and you have some (laughs) altitude now, which I I love that term. Yes, I have some altitude on this Um, because, you know, I just, God knows what what to do. And so I had to just step back and say, okay, you know, this is your decision, not mine. But the... The emotion of that. That's just not fair. The, I, my intention's not to be unfair. <laughs> my know, intention is to is to make it's sure that, true. that because here, here's the thing. One in four women in this country right. deal with infertility. They do. Thousands of women in this state alone, we're in Tennessee, in this state alone, thousands of women at this very moment are dealing with infertility. Yeah. When you broaden that out nationally, there's a, about a million live births or so a year, which means several of those women had to either deal deal with IUIs, they had maybe dealt with IVF, they had to deal with the same journey, and no one's talking about it. So please, maybe the better way for me to say it is give words to that emotion. Okay. So it's our basic biological duty and our basic biological purpose is to bear children. Right. That feels unfair, but I'll, I'm going to go on. I'm going to go okay. with you. So, so we're, roll, we're here for more than just roll with giving birth. Oh, my gosh. Of course we are. But that's what our bodies are built for. I see. Biological. Biologically. Okay, I'm with you. Biologically, I'm with you. not sociologically. Biologically, biologically that is we what bear children. we're built to do. We are the only path for that. 
right? Well, not anymore, but we were for centuries. The only path. And, you know, the air and a spare. Very much a topical conversation right now. Mm-hmm. That was our duty for a really long time. And it wasn't until the 50s when we suddenly had a little more control over whether or not we had children. And that's something that I didn't think I wanted children for a really, really long time. So I was totally fine. You know, uh, even even when I miscarried, I was like, well, you know, okay. Maybe, maybe this isn't supposed to happen. Maybe this isn't supposed to happen. It's okay. I was okay through it. It was hard. It was awful. Um, but I also managed to keep the joy, keep the fun, keep doing the things that I loved. We had, when we did the IVF, there was um, a meeting that we had to do with all the, all the couples who were doing IVF at that time. And they make you sit down with everybody in a room. And, you know, my husband and I were goofing around and they're like, you know, they're showing us the needle that he's going to have to shoot into my glutes. And it's huge. And he's like, ha, 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 you know, and he's, yeah. he's pretending to stab me with it. And we're goofing around. And we were the only ones that were like yeah. making light of this. It, it, you have to. You had to stay a little bit on the, the well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen side of it. And that's yeah. probably what got me through. But it was, it was awful. I mean, it yeah. was awful and hard. And I felt like I was disappointing my husband. I wasn't able to give him a family. And he really wanted a family. Um, so, you know, it was, it's a very difficult, very difficult emotional journey to go on. And I definitely have packed it away yeah. in a nice little spot that I don't go into very often. It's like that that little storage room in your house yeah. that's got all the crap in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just don't go there because if I go there, then I don't feel good. It's not fun. Did you play around in that closet for this oh, book? I had to. I mean, I had to. To let Olivia feel in a way that could connect with people. Because, I, you know, I can shut myself off and not connect with people on this. That's fine. That's my business. But for her, mm. she had to be out there and had to be open. And so every time I read the opening scene with her, it was just ripping off the scab. Mm. Everyone's like, you know, I've been asked, is this therapeutic? No. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm reliving the same pain. I'm reliving it. I'm reliving it over and over because in order to make it come to life, I had to do that. I had to make sure. And, you know, I didn't want anyone to read this and be like, oh, she has no idea what she's talking about. That's Mm. not what it's like. And, you know, we also have to remember that it's different for everyone, right? You know, how your body's reacting, how you you are reacting emotionally. But but there are just some very commonalities that I wanted to pull together. Yeah. I I do find it interesting that, I mean, there's many parts of this that I find so interesting. The the amount of time that it took before you were finally able to access that closet, Mm -hmm. that's fascinating to me because I think it speaks to how we in this society process grief and loss and how it's so much easier to just push down emotion to mm-hmm. oh, and, absolutely. And, and to pretend it's not there because that's just easier to do. Um, and so that for me is a, is a big one. And I also think this is important. No one, to my knowledge, no one is writing about this to the, to the point that like you processed pain through an artistic expression. Mm-hmm. I've not seen anyone write about infertility and IVF. Have you seen anyone write no. about it in this way? In, not in, in this fiction, way. in fiction. P- plenty of people maybe write an essay or, you know, an op-ed or something like that. But not the deep exploration of all the nooks and crannies, like a novel. I mean, how many pages is this thing? Oh, I mean, it's, you know, it's 400, 400 pages of... But of all of it. To, it's, it's all of it, but it also is this... It's this incredible story of what would you do in this situation? How would you react? Mm-hmm. And it's not just that she's miscarrying. It's that her husband has lied yeah. to her. Yep, yep, yep. There's a killer on the loose who is targeting her and targeted a friend of hers. And, and yeah. you know, all of these things, you know, it's like my job as a writer is to take the worst case for a, for a character. Here is your worst day ever. Yeah. How can I make it even worse? <laughs> 
here's the worst day of your life. You're having your sixth, you know, it's an open. She's having her sixth miscarriage. Wow. Right? That's a bad enough morning. Yeah. Right? But my job as a writer is to find how to make it worse. <laughs> and I do. And this poor woman, oh, my gosh. Do you think your character, do you think Olivia has it worse than you did? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because you didn't have to deal with murder. Times. I didn't, yeah. Didn't. You didn't have to deal with the omissions. The omissions and, and the, the emissions. emissions. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, I, I this this had even come about. One of the plot points is that he has not told her mm. that he was a sperm donor. And, and that came out, you know, I asked my husband when we were going through all this. I'm like, I want you to donate mm. if you want you know, you don't feel like you have to, but I, you have my permission yeah. to donate. So you know that there's something of you left behind. And, you know, it's, she says that to him mm. in the book. And Park does not tell her. Mm. He already has. He had the perfect he opportunity. He had the opportunity and he didn't. And it, it wasn't in a moment of duress or anything like that. They were just having one of those hard conversations that you have when you have a marriage. And she didn't do it. And so that lie of omission about the emissions is what really drives this story. (laughs) I love that you can giggle through it. Um, Let's talk about writing as, well, I was going to say writing as a craft, but how did you start writing? I mean, again, we, as established, this is your 25th book and you've got two other books that are they already completed? That you that you just haven't released yet? Yeah, I have two more two more finished, um, and one I'm halfway through. So, and so let's start a bunch of short how, stories. How yeah. did you get into it? How did you even start? And then how did it become this thing? As you now, as a New York Times bestselling thriller author, it's yeah, incredible, right? It is kind of incredible. Um, so I was always a writer. I wrote little poems and little short stories and and all of those kinds of things when I was growing up. My grandmother was a journalist in Gainesville. She wrote for the paper down there. And she took one of my poems that had won a county, you know, county prize, the county fair, you know, poetry prize. Um, uh, It was about slavery. And she took it and submitted it to True Confessions magazine. I got my first rejection when I was eight. (laughs) Got this rejection letter. Dear JT. I'm like, seriously, what is this? So, you know, I, I started early and it, I was the one in school that everybody brought their papers to. And will you edit this for me? And, you know, it just that was always who I was. Um, and I identified as the writer. I absolutely did. I didn't think I was going to do it as a career, but it was just who I was. And I went to school, um, got a dual major in politics and creative writing, but I was planning to go and get an MFA and, and, you know, try to do this. And my professor said I wasn't good enough to get published. <laughs> so I do you, have you connected back with that professor? I'm just curious. I have not. She didn't get tenure. So <laughs> sucks for you. So, karma is a bitch. <laughs> you know, she may have gotten tenure somewhere else, but she did, didn't get tenure. She, she was, um, it was really sad, though, because I really respected her. She was a brilliant writer on her own. Yeah. But she didn't think you had it. But she but didn't think clearly I had it. That was wrong. Well, at the time, I probably didn't. You yeah. know, I was 21 years old. I hadn't really experienced anything. Mm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I had, had nothing to write about. I was just yeah. mimicking what I had seen, which is how we all get started, right? right? right. We read something that blows our mind. Yeah. For me, it was when I was a kid, it was, it was Alfred Lord Tennyson's The Eagle. He clasped the crag with crooked hands. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? It was metaphor on a level that I could understand because I lived in the woods. Yeah. And we had eagles. We had hawks. And I could go literally read this poem and then go outside and see it. And it clicked. I mean, that just absolutely clicked for me. So that's probably where the, the writing Hmm. You know, if there has to be a moment where it's like, oh, this is it, it. that was it. Um, And I was little. I couldn't have been more than seven or eight. You know, I I was a very precocious young reader. So I listened to her because she I respected her and I was like, all right, fine. So I went and got a master's degree in politics instead, political management, met my husband the first night of class. Oh, I love that. Awesome. So everything, again, happens for a reason. And we, you know, we got married three years later and ended up moving here to Tennessee. And 
I was just like a bad country music song. My cat died, didn't have any friends, couldn't find a job, kept getting lost everywhere in town. You know, Old Hickory is in four places. It was really difficult. Yeah. Um, and so when my husband and I were dating, there were a couple of really cool shows on. So we would watch, you know, we would go to class and then we would watch ER and we would watch Profiler. And the idea of an FBI profiler who could actually solve crimes with her intellect <laughs> was really appealing to me. Yeah. And then we also had at that time Patricia Cornwell was huge. James Patterson was huge. Yeah. These big time authors, Tammy Hogue, um, who I would read and be like, wow, I really like these books because they explore justice in a way that other genres don't. I mean, all books have death as a set piece. Even most literary novels are a mystery in some ways. Mm. But thrillers, A, there's pace, so it moves really fast. B, you get to have a hero who can really be cool. And a lot of the heroes were female, which was really exciting to me. I've yeah. got all these women to start looking up to. And then we have the, the idea of how can we find some closure for somebody? How can we have justice? In the real world, there is not justice. Um, infrequent. Infrequently. <laughs> infrequently. How can we figure out a way to fix that? Mm. Plus, there's this there but for the grace of God go I aspect mm. of it. But Taylor Jackson, who was my, uh, my first franchise character, she was just the embodiment of my hero complex, right? I'd be driving down the road and I, my imagination, you know, it always goes on overdrive and there would be a car accident and I would be like, okay. Now, if it was Taylor, the car would be on fire and we would pull over and she would run up and she would get them out of the car and then she would get back in and leave and she wouldn't talk to the media. I mean, it was a total hero complex. And so I explored that on the page and it worked. It worked really well. And she's this really dynamic character who, you know, she's the warrior goddess of Nashville. She's half, <laughs> half cop, half rock star. It was exactly what we needed. I wanted yeah. and I wanted to put Nashville on the map. This was, you know, obviously in 2007 was when my first book came out. So we weren't really on the map in the way that we are now. Yeah. But we have all the big city problems. We have all the dichotomies that a big city has. It just this really small area. And I found it fascinating. And that's what I wanted to write about. And that's what I wanted to share with everyone. So it all just came out yeah. like that. I just love I just love seeing this exploration for you. And just to think that you've turned out so many amazing works and it's only been it's not even been twenty years. Right. That's that's remarkable. Right. Um okay so I had to I, make up for lost time. <laughs> I really did. And you are, you are. I can't imagine um just how much how many boundaries you have to have for yourself because you are creating art. And that requires silence, that requires mm -hmm. stillness, that requires time where, I mean, I'm like using my hands to create the boundary. Like no one gets into this right. space and this time right? because you can't just sleep and suddenly those things appear. No, you have to create those things. So you have to create time to do it too. And so right. I, I'm fascinated by that and the, the, the commitment you have to have to that craft to be able to create those things. Did you, did you have to learn the boundaries oh, for sure. that? You have to learn, you have to learn the discipline. I mean, absolutely. So I started in 2009, I came across, um, somebody named Chris Gilbo who does, he was, his, his blog was called the art of nonconformity and he did annual reviews. And I was like, well, when I was a professional, I had to do annual reviews. Everybody would sit me down and here's how you <laughs> did this year. Oh, JT. <laughs> I chafed in every job. I was yes. I was fine at what I did, but man, did I chafe at it. I do not <laughs> I do not take instruction from others. Well, this was I was meant Same. to be a writer. I just was not meant to have a job job. Um, but the idea of, okay, wait a second. I need to approach this a little with more discipline. I'm writing three books a year, two books a year under contract to be released. So in order to do that, I really had to write three yeah. to, to be able to, to work on that. I had all three books of the first contract done before the first book came out wow. um, and had another contract before the Whoa. first book came out. So, so it was moving really, really fast. And I knew I needed to be disciplined with it. And 
you know, I was writing from one to four every afternoon. That was my sacred time. And that if I can give any advice to any creative who wants to do their art is to find the time and respect it and expect the people around you to respect it as well. Because one to four every day, do not call me. I'm not on email. Chris, that was the time where, you know, we were all on AOL. So you did your email once a day because yeah. it took an hour to <laughs> open it. You know? Dial up. It took so long. Dial up was so slow and we had really slow dial up. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh. So, you know, we didn't have the distractions that we have now. And that's, you know, I'm glad that I set that discipline early because now, you know, with a thousand other things and we do a lot of our own marketing and we do a lot of day-to-day outreach directly to readers, whereas normally, you know, you would only talk to a reader when your book came out yeah. or if they wrote you a letter or maybe you had a newsletter that you mailed to their right. house. You know, it's so it, funny. There was not this, this person-to-person interaction yeah. at all. And, you know, there's a lot of people to interact with when you've got a long career. Yes. <laughs> Which is wonderful. <laughs> but you have to be very disciplined about when you do that. So I do business on Fridays. So I write during the week and I do business on Fridays. And that works that. really, really well. I love that. Okay. So you can't come onto this podcast and <laughs> not answer the questions that everybody answers uh, while they're here. So <coughs> I would say, let's get started. But well, I mean, we've already started in a way. So here's here's the main thing. Season three is all about lessons for this podcast. So is there a lesson that you are either consistently learning over and over again that you can look back on your life and go, oh, my God, why am I learning this again? Clearly, I didn't get it. Or is there something that you're learning in real time that you want to share with us and teach us about today? There is. It's really <laughs> funny because when you said that, I was like, oh, wow. There, yes, I've got one. I've got one because I'm going it. through it right now. It's to remember the joy in what you do. Remember the joy. Remember why you started. Remember why you wanted it so badly. Mm. Because it's so easy to take it for granted once you get it. Mm. No matter if that's having children no matter if that's trying to write a book, trying to paint, trying to run a podcast, anything that you want. Why did you start it? Mm. So if you if you get to that point where you're like, you're being really grumpy, <laughs> and maybe people around you are like, wow, why are you being so negative? Remember the joy in what you were doing. I, I've got a new mantra this year that I'm really focused on, and it's be present, be positive. I like it. I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. And sometimes I catch myself denigrating it mm. to be able to be on the same level with people who aren't where I am. Um, it is <sighs> the more successful you are in a career, the fewer people you have. They peel off because it's very difficult if they're not hitting the same marks that you are to celebrate somebody over and over and over, right? So it's very easy in order to keep the people that you love in your life to just, you know, downplay it. Oh, it's fine. It's Yeah, it's not going that great. Oh, you know, they're screwing this up. Oh, this is not happening. Whatever, I'll never make the list, blah, blah, blah. It's really easy to do that, yeah. to try to even the playing yeah. field. And, and it almost sounds like, too, that you, when you say things like that, you're almost telling yourself, like, Setting yourself managing up for disappointment. Your own expectations. Yeah, managing your own expectations. Right. Right. But there's when you start throwing that stuff out, you're just throwing out negativity. You're That's the opposite of your mantra. You're creating that, right? Mm -hmm. You create words are very, very powerful. As we have learned, words mean a lot. And you can very easily talk yourself into a failed career mm -hmm. if you are not careful with how you treat yourself and how you treat your work. And how you hold it up. You have to hold it up. You have to be proud of it. Yeah. You know, or else, obviously, I've written 25. I've written. I'm on 29 right now. <laughs> I have to. You've it, written more than you've released. I've written more than have. I've released. So this is the 25th published novel. Obviously, I'm doing something right. Right. right? It's, it's connecting somewhere. 
So why do I try to manage my own expectations? Why am I not like celebrating it always? So I just have to remind myself of that. Mm. And it's, it's happened a number of times. It usually happens after I level up with a book. Um, when, when I've taken a step forward creatively, when I've taken a step forward in my craft, when I have found a way to actually do something more meaningful than the previous that is where I start yeah. pulling myself back because it's huh. like, how are do you, you afraid? Is that what oh, that's called? Totally. Okay. Totally, total fear of, of success, fear of failure, fear of never being able to do it again. Yeah. I mean, it's taken me forever to get into this next book because this one is special. Yeah. It's special and it's bigger. And I, you know, how do you, how do you top, you know, when you win the world series, how do you go back and win the World Series again year mm. after year? It's really hard. You can make it to the playoffs, yeah. and you know you're going to make it to the playoffs. But every once in a while, you're going to win the World Series, yeah. and that's what this book is to me. Do you think it's the most important work you've ever done? Yes. Yes, absolutely. How do you say it so hands down, so matter-of-factly? What about it to you means you've won the World Series about this book? Because this one might help somebody. I don't normally write things that would fall into that category, right? I did um, Tear Me Apart, which is, uh, it, it explores um, a lot of cutting, suicide, a lot of things like that. And I've got an author's note in the end that I still get emails from people that are just unbelievably touched that, you know, I give the suicide hotline, I give my email. Like, you know, if you, if you can't call them, call me, send me a note. And that really, that was a very personal thing for me to touch on, and it really connected with people. This is the same. And and it. I hope if even just one person reads it and says, wow, there's life on the other side of this. If they read the author's note and they realize, wow, she went through a lot. It was hard. It was difficult. But she's okay yeah. and, and is having a great life and, and is remembering the joy and is staying focused and staying positive. You know, that's that's really important. And if, like I said, just one person gets that yeah. message, then I've done my job. I do see the work that you've done with this. And I and I realize that you, J.T. Ellison, fit into the three percent of women in this country that even with fertility treatments, don't they don't result in yeah. a live birth. So three, you're one of 3%. And I see it, though, as for the women who end up not having children, there is something else you're supposed to give birth to. Sure. And I look at this book and the other books that you've released, and I say, well, that's what, that is what you gave birth to. And I, and I think that all of us are here to give birth to something. So what is that? You know what I mean? And that, that's how I see it. Yeah. So, so I hope that you don't look on that time anymore with sadness. I hope that you were able to put this book out and heal some things. Um, yeah. I, I realize, as you're saying, like rereading it the hundred times that you had to <laughs> like reread and go yeah, over and over. desensitize at some point. But I know it's painful, and I, but I hope there was some healing in the process of that because there, there is joy, right, when you're mm -hmm. able to – you, you combined a couple things, right? Like, here, I got to talk with my hands, too. You, you, did, you did combine things. You took your craft. You took your lived experience, the same experience that when you were 20 trying to write, you couldn't write because no. you didn't have no. the experience. So now you've got craft, you've got lived experience, and you've given birth. You've put those things together, and you've given birth to something really beautiful and impactful. Um, I, I wonder what your hope is for this book. Is it just simply to help someone, or is there, is there more that you hope for? It's, it is to, to try to touch that one person who's going to be able to maybe dig themselves out. But that's what literature is for. That's what books are for. I get emails from people that say, you know, my mom was dying, and I sat and read your book while mm -hmm. we went through hospice, and it kept me from, you know, really going crazy. My mom, I was in the hospital having uh, chemo and I read the entire Taylor series. You know, mm. That kind of stuff just really blows my mind yeah. that, that I have this crazy psychic connection with somebody, with something I've written years ago and it helps them now. Anything that can help somebody I think is really paramount yeah. to the entertainment value. 
But I want people to be entertained by it, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want people to be afraid to pick this book up and be like, oh, I'm going to be hit over the head (laughs) with the infertility mallet. And I don't want to read this because it's going to be triggering or it's going to be difficult or, you know, I don't want to read about that because I'm bored with that. You know, it's it's bigger Mm -hmm. than that. And I think that's what makes it successful in my mind and why I feel like it's going to do well. I feel like it's going to meet people where they are on a lot of levels. Yeah. And that's that's really fun. Yeah. It's really exciting. Well, there's joy there. And when you talk about it, I'm watching you talk about it, and you've got this big smile on your face, and your <laughs> eyes are getting big, and they're dancing. And and, uh, and and I can tell, I mean, obviously you enjoy it. You wouldn't do all the things that you do right. with the books if you didn't enjoy it. Um, I'm, I'm just curious about, as we think about, what, what was the mantra again? The What were be present, be present, be positive, be positive, be present, be positive. I, I write that. it every week when I do my weekly plan. I write it and star it. So I just, you know, really keep it front and center. Like, okay, here's, here's what you got to remember this week. Stay mm-hmm. present. Be present. Because be we live in the future, right? We, we're constantly, oh. we're, you know, we're yes. constantly scheduling things for, oh, this is going to come out, you know, in three weeks, four weeks. We are, especially writers, you know, we've got you're, deadlines. You're working a year out. ahead sometimes. Oh, two a year, years ahead. 18, you know, 18 months. Yeah. I turned that in 18 months ago. So there is, or we're living in the past of, oh, this didn't work. Yeah. Why did this happen? Why, if I had only done this... You know, I do a lot of that. Oh, if I had only <laughs> if I had only done X, if I had made this decision, this was a bad decision. If I had done this, if I had done that, I do a lot of that too. Yeah, to make sure that I don't do it again. Right. Um, so it's either I'm living in the past or I'm living in the future. So I really do have to focus on being present and work on the on the work that's in front of me, not the mm. four other projects. You know, I've got like four or five projects right now. Yeah, and it's you know pick that thing right. and stay with it for the day. Really important. Isn't it funny that even as we age that something so simple could be such a struggle? <laughs> but it gets you know, easier. It, gets... it does get easier because you have that I don't really care what people feel <laughs> and think things starting to go on, yeah. which is really powerful. That That has changed a lot for me. You know, I... Being an introvert, having social anxiety, it's just part of it. Right? I would never have been able to do this when I first this started. This interview? Yeah, no, I would have never well, been able to. Well, you're a master. You're masterful in how you communicate, truly. Well, it's I've practiced. I've <laughs> practiced. You know, they used to do media training with me. Oh, Lord. I mean, all the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you, you're familiar with that. Yes, but, I, I mean, am. All the way back in college, in grad school, the whole idea of, of grad school was I was going to be the candidate and... My husband was going to run the cam- campaign oh. back when we were dating. And we had an exercise where they actually put us on camera to do that. And we had a stump speech and, you know, the whole nine yards. And they got me in front of that camera and I froze. Oh, I, I, froze, I feel that. Boom. Done. Deer in the headlights. Couldn't couldn't do it. Yeah. And so we, we had to shift. And my husband had to become the candidate. <laughs> and I had to become the behind the scenes. And I got... I think that narrative stuck in my head of you are afraid of the camera. You are afraid to go out Mm. in public. You are afraid to, you know, expose yourself like this. And that became part of who I was. And Mm. it really built into this whopping social anxiety that, you know, I I had to take medication to even leave the house to go to a book signing for somebody else. Not even for me. So it took it took a lot of training and a lot of reframing and reimagining how this you know is going to it 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 was a a friend of mine who said what are you afraid is going to happen do you think they're going to rush the stage throw you down and beat you what do you think (laughs) is going to happen I'm like well yeah maybe and he's like no no. people want you they're there because they want you to succeed. You know, they don't want you to fail. They oh, want he, you to succeed. He totally he, changed the paradigm for you. He flipped it on its head for me. And from that moment on, I stopped having to take Ativan or Enderol or whatever wow. to go up and talk. And I mean, it genuinely changed things for me. Thanks, James Bourne. Appreciate it. <laughs> and, 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 but that was that was a couple of years into my career. Yeah. And that was around the same time when I realized, okay, I want to start doing annual reviews. I need to start yeah. looking at my word counts. I need to start tracking all of these things. And I started controlling it in a way that was really comfortable for me. 
and and has led to the discipline of doing the work. Do you know what's interesting just hearing you tell that story? I, Lauren, I personally have started working with friends to help them. I don't know what else to call it other than on-camera coaching, but that's not even really what I'm doing. What I find that I'm doing with my friends is being like, there's nothing about the camera that I'm teaching them. I am telling them, I'm giving them permission. Right. I'm giving them permission right. to, to be whoever it is that they are, but I'm also turning things on their head, like exactly what your friend yeah. did. Uh, what do you think's going to happen? And then, hey, let's explore that. What if you get in front of the camera and you freeze? What happens? Yeah, what happens? What's what the happens? worst thing that happens? Exactly. They cut and they start over. Yeah. They stop. They, we just hit the red button again yeah. and we just and take we a breath again. and then we do it again. And so you know what I end up doing with a lot of my friends? Desensitization. Yeah. I'm like, nope, yeah. try again. No, you messed up. Try again. Try again. One of my friends was like, it took me 30 takes to do this thing. And I'm like, but look what you came up with. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't matter. Just delete it and start again. Yeah. Delete it and start. What's the worst that's going to happen? It takes you an hour. Okay. <laughs> Who cares? I have a I have a blooper that I saved because when I when I tape reels and stuff for my assistant for her to put stuff together, yeah. I you know it, it takes multiple takes. It's like yeah. oh that's oh I yep. screwed that up. Yep. Oh wow, you know I was looking over there, you know <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But I did one the other day, a four minute off the cuff wow. talking about this book. Yeah, and I finished and I was like. Oh my God! Did I just do that in one take? You did it! I did it one take. That's one incredible, take, Tony. Hoo hoo! You know, and <laughs> I kept the I kept that because I'm like, you got to remind yourself sometimes. Yeah. Just relax. Yeah, just totally. relax. Nobody is judging you. Nobody cares. No one cares. No one cares. I um, it I rarely can do things in one take. Sometimes I can, but and this is what I do for a living. Right. So, if I have to record again, who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's uh, a very powerful. Yes. realization. Yeah, just giving yourself permission to mess up. Yes. Who cares? There's permission. Yeah. But this won't be a mess up. It's oh, one I of us. Not. That's not a mess it, up. It took a while, but <laughs> I think I think it's in a, a good place now and especially with that last minute change. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love that for you. Uh, JT Ellison, thank you so much oh, for Lauren, being here. Thank you. This is great. Best of luck. Congratulations on putting out such an important work. Um, it's available everywhere, right? Anywhere books are sold. Anywhere books are sold, and we have uh, signed books at Parnassus. I love that. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I just love JT so much. If you need an escape from your day-to-day -day and you're looking for a good book series, I put a link in the show notes for where you can explore her work. Obviously, the book we talked about today, It's One of Us, again, is available right now wherever books are sold, and you can find a direct link to that as well in the show notes. Even more important, if you've struggled with infertility, please know you're not alone. JT's book might be just the absolute catharsis that you need as you read it, and knowing all along that the woman who created it has been exactly where you are. Next week on Amstigator, I sit down with my actual therapist. Yes, mine. This is the woman who rescued me out of diagnosed PTSD after my hospitalizations in August. She is the reason I'm okay, truly. So we talk about the challenge in actually helping someone. How do you do that? And then how her early days as an NFL cheerleader <laughs> led her into work as a therapist. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Cool story that you'll get to catch next week. For now, I encourage you to shine your light, lead with your heart, and live life purposefully. I'm Lauren Lowry, and this is Amstigator.